0: The book of James is, without question, one of the most powerful in the Bible, and it is so because I believe that James fearlessly challenges us to look at ourselves and to look at the lives, the circumstances, the scenarios in which we find ourselves. Does everybody have a study sheet for tonight, by the way? Okay, good. I would encourage you to keep these and refer to them in the future because the Holy Spirit will take what we've jotted down here and He will multiply it to your understanding. And it may, it may be that a time in your life, for example, when I was a youth pastor, I preached a message that didn't seem to have anything to do with young people. And one of the girls that was there, I think she was 14 at the time, she came up to me and she said, Well, Pastor, I always enjoy your preaching, but what you preached tonight didn't seem to have anything to do with my life. And I said, Well, that's okay. Remember it, file it, think about it, study it, and the time may come when it will. Well, about 12 years later, she sent me a letter in snail mail, old-fashioned, old back in the day when people used to actually write letters on paper with pen and ink. And she bought three pages of how... That message that that I had preached that night, she was looking through her files and she found it. And it was just perfect for what she was going through at the time, yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera. So said all that to say it might behoove you to keep a file of these notes because you never know when you may want to refer to them at some point in the future. Now, James is a brother of Jesus Christ, which proves that Mary is not a perpetual virgin. Mary and Joseph had sex, and Mary had babies. I know when you say that, Catholics tend to pass out in the sanctuary, but it is true. I said that in my church in New Mexico, which was which was populated by predominantly former Catholics, and you should have seen the expression on the faces. I, I thought I might not survive the day, you know. I said, Mary's not a virgin anymore, and it was like, said, so Joseph and Mary had sex. And it was like, they just couldn't believe it. I mean, literally, mouths open, jaws agape. It was, it was incredible. But that shouldn't surprise us. It doesn't diminish the holiness of God. God's the one who created sex. God, God didn't fashion people like neutered mannequins, and then the devil come along and attach sex organs to us. You know, this was all God's idea. So he planned it this way. So sex is not evil. But the world has turned it into something perverse in many places. So it's not, uh, it's not dirty or ugly or nasty at all. It's, it's perfectly natural the way God intended it to be. So don't, don't, don't let the fact that Joseph and Mary uh, were, were intimate, don't let that cause you to stumble. It shouldn't be a shock to anybody. I'm always amazed that it is. So James is literally the physical brother of Jesus other than the fatherhood. God the Holy Spirit was the father of Jesus and Joseph was the father of James but Mary was the mother of both so in other words Joseph and Mary did not have sex for her to have Jesus but they did for all the other brothers and sisters we don't have any record of the Holy Spirit providing children for the rest of their family just Jesus so it starts in James 1, verse 1. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I like that. There's no mistake in who he's talking about. Let me give you a tip on this. When you're out in public or somebody asks you a spiritual question or, uh, you know, the Bible says we should always be ready to defend the faith that we profess and give explanation. When somebody asks you a question about God, understand that the word God means many different things to many different people. God to the Native American, the strict religious Native American, means the Great Spirit. That is not the God of the Bible. God to a Muslim means Allah. He is not the God of the Bible. God to a Buddhist means basically Buddha and nothingness. And neither one of those is the God of the Bible. I could go on and on and on. But when you say the Lord Jesus Christ, or Christ or Jesus... That leaves no room for misunderstanding about what you're talking about. So, if you want to be obscure for whatever strategic reason, then the word God may serve you well. But if you want to be very clear about who you're talking about, use the terms Jesus and the Lord Jesus Christ, and people will know with no doubt who you're talking about. And the next statement is to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So, this is to the 12 tribes of Israel. James is writing a letter to his brothers and sisters of the 12 tribes of Israel that are not all collected up in Israel. These have been scattered across the nations. This was called the Diaspora. There have been several of those diasporas in history. And there was one that seemed to have occurred around this time. Not as bad, perhaps, as the, the one later on. But this one resulted in tribes being scattered among the nations he says greetings and then he makes a statement that seems to be counterintuitive to everything that's human he says consider it pure joy my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of many kinds trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance man oh man what a statement if you stop and really intellectually gestate on what you just read and really spiritually consider the impact of those words. It's one of the most powerful life application scriptures in the whole Bible. And we've talked about considering our perspective in life and we've talked about a a couple of other items regarding this verse, but I want to move to the end of it it says, because you know. I want you to notice that it does not say, because you feel. It says, because you know. One of my, one of my undeniable truths of life that's going in my book, and I am going to write this book, The Undeniable Truths of Life. I'll probably entitle it something else, but that'll be in the subtitle. You look on the back, back cover, you'll know what it is. Roland's Undeniable Truths of Life. One of them is, we do not live by what we feel. We live by what we know. And what we know is five words. What does the Bible say? Now listen, if you, if you never reach the point where you live by what you know, then you will never reach the place where you live in peace. And we say that to you again. If you never reach the place where you live by what you know, you'll never reach the place where you live in peace. Because your feelings will be subjected to circumstances. Other people's opinions satanic attack your own physical status hormonal influences sickness weakness injury uh even chemical imbalances can affect your mood your 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 food the food you eat powerfully affects how you feel how we feel is like measuring the earth's climate by looking at waves in a lake it's pointless we just can't function that way Now, feelings in and of themselves are not necessarily bad things. I don't think God intended us to be Mr. Spock off Star Trek and walk around like Vulcans with no emotion. God didn't hardwire us that way. God gave us emotions. The problem occurs when people allow emotions to dominate their lives. Now, listen, this is the important thing. This is the important thing about emotions versus knowledge. We have to come to the place where we make decisions not based on emotion, but based on reason. Let me say that again. We've we've got mature people. Mature people, spiritually mature, emotionally mature, mentally, intellectually mature, cognitively astute people. Make decisions based on rational reason, not emotion. We have to learn to make our decisions not in the heat of the moment, not under the influence of endorphins or hormones or chemicals or anything else. We have to learn to make our decisions based on facts and reason and rationality and the leading of the Holy Spirit, which has nothing to do with emotions. Faith and emotions have nothing to do with each other. Very important distinction. Okay, so I want to move away from that. Just just a little tidbit. I could have spent a whole night talking about that. But I want to get to the last half of this verse, or the part where it says, "The testing of your faith develops perseverance." I like the version in the NIV, the older NIV, that says, "The testing of your faith develops perseverance." Now, look. At, if you want to look at your notes, let's just take these things one by one and, and walk through this together tonight, as we as we drill down into this absolute gold mine of biblical truth and power sitting in front of us in James 1 point number one God does test us it is not fun but it is for our good now we already established this in Wednesday night past I have however found it very beneficial for people to review things in a in a subtle kind of way not just say the same things over and over but to sort of cover them again, perhaps from a different perspective or a different angle or a different lens of focus, as it were. God tests us. There's no doubt about that. God tested Abraham. He told Abraham, go take your son and put him on that rock and sacrifice him to me. Well, we know that's not the way God operates, but Abraham was so radical in his faith and trust in God the Bible says that Abraham and and Abraham and Sarah had Isaac when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. So by the time Isaac was born, Abraham was close to 101 and Sarah was close to 91. She'd been barren for years. But when Isaac was born, he was the son of promise. God had said, through Isaac, your offspring will be reckoned and your, your descendants will be like the sands of the seashore and the stars in the sky. Well, after giving him that promise, then God says, okay, take Isaac and go sacrifice him. That makes no sense. Now, let me just tell you something. From time to time, God will tell you to do things that may make no sense to you. And sometimes you may never figure them out your whole life. I'll give you an example. The second oldest Assembly of God church in the state of Georgia is North Highland Assembly of God down in Columbus. Pastor Don and I were called by the pastor in 1986 to come and sort of meet with the young people to candidate, as it were, try out to be youth pastors of that church. They had already tried out a couple, and they had a a scale of five um, points that they rated you on, and a a scale of one to ten on each of those. And they had tried out some some people whose, whose uh, parents were pretty famous people in the Assemblies of God, and they didn't know me and Donna from Adam's house cat. So we went down there. Interestingly enough, the very same day I got offered that, the same day I got offered that position to go to North Island and at least try out the candidate, on that same day, the city manager where I, where I lived offered me the job of assistant city manager and encouraged me to go to Florence, South Carolina, and become the state senator in the next election because some things had happened and there were people already talking about that. And I wasn't interested in any of that. So we went down to Columbus and we candidated. And the youth group, for whatever reason, God sent them a delusion, I guess, and they liked us and they elected us. And so the pastor hired us. Now, when you're the associate pastor, we were the worship leaders. I was a youth pastor. I guess if there was an associate pastor title or assistant pastor, it would have been me. I I'd take I took care of every department in the church pretty much, except the Sunday preaching. I remember setting up stuff for the senior adults and, and dealing with them and doing stuff with the single adults and doing stuff with the athletic program and all these things kind of came under our umbrella and that was fine. But when you're, we saw the church grow from about 200 to about 700. When I got there, just as a point of entrance, there were five keyboards on the platform. Five. And two of them were grand pianos facing each other. I'm thinking, what in the world is going on here, dueling pianos? You know, it was just amazing. So we got all those keyboards off the platform except for the grand piano that I was playing and the organ that the pastor's wife insisted on playing and a synthesizer that once in a while I would play and then we got guitars and drums. We brought them from the old-fashioned worship into contemporary worship the way we do worship in most churches now. Made a huge difference. They were behind the curve there and you know we we brought them up to to speed with that for for those years. I said all that to say this. Our youth group grew very rapidly and when you're in that position you're like it's kind of like being Riker on the Enterprise. You know, you're on a, you're on a great ship, a flagship of sorts, and your, your ship's kind of famous in the fleet, and you're the second officer, or the first officer, second in command. You, you kind of get to pick the ship you want to go to. I, I kind of had my pick of churches, and my pastor was the assistant superintendent at the time. He's retired now and in poor health, but he was the assistant superintendent at the time, so I could have pretty much picked any church I wanted to go to, but somehow God called me to a little church in New Mexico that had 20 people in it. And we went there and stayed there for four and a half years. And we had a lot of experience. You know, you would think, why in the world would God do that? Well, that's where I met J.R. Gould, one of my best friends in the world. Shirley is still a friend of ours. That's where we did uh, the live Praise the Lord TV program. Not saying that that's necessarily a Always a good thing, but it, it was for that place for that time. We did the Praise the Lord program almost every week for about three years, four years of the time we were there. And I remember one, and I'm just kind of sharing my heart with you right now. I remember one uh, show that Deanna asked us to do. She called me up. She said, Rowan, I want to do a show on the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to lead the show. and I want you to preach. I said, okay. So we went and, sh- and, you know, you're in a small studio and you've got three of these big Ikegami cameras that are a quarter of a million dollars a piece and they're on these floats and they're moving around. And this is, this is high-level production and it's live. There's not even a nine-second delay. It's just straight live right now. We did this so many times and did some shows around the country, you know, in Texas and Nevada and Arizona and different places. Anyway, um, I started preaching on the Holy Spirit. And normally, you know me, I'm going to come out there with with guns blazing. But the Holy Spirit prompted me, do this gently. Do this with great grace and love. So instead of coming out and and making these bombastic statements like a a young preacher is wont to do, I was very careful in what I said. I spoke the truth, but I spoke it gently. And boy, Deanna had an absolute ironclad, written in granite law at the station and it was you preach for 20 minutes and when you see me give you this sign that means you're halfway done you got 10 minutes left when i give you this sign you got five minutes left when i give you this sign you got one minute left and at the end of that minute i'm going to give you that at 30 seconds and we're going to give you a 10 minute count a 10 second countdown and you are done and if you're not done we're going to music anyway And she meant that. And I've seen her cut people off and go straight to music. And and there's them still preaching. Just cut the camera off, cut the mic, boom, go to the music, you know. Got to be 20 minutes. You know, it got to be 15 minutes. I looked up at her. I had gotten no sign. Got to be 20 minutes. I looked at her, and she went, that meant keep going. Got to be 25 minutes, and I kept looking at her, and she kept. Got to be 30 minutes. 45 minutes I preached on the Holy Spirit. And she said the switchboard lit up. There were Catholic priests who called in, Methodist ministers, Baptist people, Presbyterians, who pastors and ministers who called the station and said, please tell the pastor that he has made me rethink everything I ever believed and was taught about the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying that to impress you with me. It was the Holy Spirit, not me. It was, whole, all, it was all him, but... We don't understand sometimes why God takes us to obscure places. We don't understand sometimes why God seems to put his hand on us and make us wait. We don't understand why God seems to allow people that have all the pulpiteer capability of a rock to have... He- i I'll tell you the truth. I'm not going to get into name calling here and the person is not even in this state. But I went to a special series of meetings one time with, and there was a guest speaker not, you wouldn't know who he was, but he's a pretty famous guy in his circles, and he's got this massive church far from here, hundreds and hundreds of miles from here, just a huge church. I promise you, I would rather listen to my little puppy try to preach. I've never been so bored in my life. I'm like, oh dear God, I've got to listen to you for 25 or 30 minutes. Man, please, Lord, just rapture me now. I couldn't believe it. Don and I, we're careful about what we say about people, but I got in the car and I just went, whew, she busted out laughing, you know. And she said, was it that bad? I said, let's don't talk about it. Let's just go to the hotel. And so we went back, and it was, but I'm, I'm amazed sometimes that people that don't seem to be gifted in a certain way have these incredible ministries, and it's like, some things don't make sense. So what we have to do is we, we have to get to the place where we understand that God tests us in a lot of ways. God will test you by keeping you in obscurity. God will test you by making you wait. God will test you by letting people that seem to be far less gifted than you prosper and become successful when you seemingly do not. But we do not measure things the same way God measures things. Jesus Christ never walked more than never went more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He never had a church, he never had credentials. He he pretty much started out with 12 guys and pretty much ended up with nobody. And in the midst of all that, he developed some people who were following him around, and as soon as he said something hard, they all deserted him. So, if you really want to know what pleases God, remember always all your life, remember We do what we do, especially those of us in in, in ministerial or, or spiritual leadership. We do what we do more than anything else for an audience of one. Let me just tell you that God doesn't need you to do His work for Him. Let me just tell you that none of us is this great superstar that God can't do without. Let me just tell you that none of us is irreplaceable. None of us is is indispensable god is going to get his work done with or without you and me and i can prove it the end times angels are going to fly through the heaven and anybody who doesn't know the gospel is going to know it because the angels are going to fly all over the world and preach the gospel in every language so the whole world is going to be evangelized with or without you and me so god's not up there wringing his hands hoping that we stay straight so we can help him save the world it's not like that i'll be honest with you i think the majority of what our lives are all about is this it's a personal thing between you and god and god's up there smiling and he's thinking i already know about all this because i live in the future i know how all this is going to pan out i'm just watching them walk through it and i'm just wondering you know what are they going to do right here you know i think a lot of what we live is basically a test personally between us and god your life consists of two things. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? And what are you going to do with the Word of God and His will for your life? And that's it. The first one is determine whether you go into heaven or hell. What are you going to do with Jesus? The second one determines your reward. What are you going to do with the Word of God and the will of God? Everything else is window dressing. Care how much money you make. You're not going to take one dime of it with you. Doesn't matter how many people come to your funeral. One of my friends at school said, "The measure of a man's success is how many people attend his funeral." I thought, "What absolute intellectual dribble is that?" That has nothing whatsoever to do with whether you were a success or not. How many people know your name? Even how many people you win to Christ. Now that's 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 I'm, sk- I'm skating out there in the middle of the lake now. Water's deep and sun's out. Ice is melting. I know, but I'm going to tell you something. It's not about all the successes we think are so important that we have for God. It is about our heart attitudes and our motivations between us and God first and foremost and far more preeminently than what we do in our ministries that God can have somebody else do in just a, just a couple of minutes if he really wants it done. Noah they won't do it like you. No, there's never going to be another you. There's never going to be another me. We're unique, blah, blah, blah. But we are not indispensable, and nor are we irreplaceable. The book of Revelation says, if you don't do what I say, I'll, I'll remove your candlestick from its place and put another one instead. So there's a lot to be said about this thing, and I'm, I'm really rambling here, but I felt prompted to, to go into that. You know, and I, I, I'm just kind of sharing my heart with you tonight. I don't know why, but I am. I live this stuff every day. I try my best to, to stay on the tip of the spear and the cutting edge of this, of this life that we call Christianity. And I try to live my life, I try to live the same stuff I preach. I think the devil knows that, and I think he hates it, but I really do try to live all this stuff I preach up here. I try to live it. It's easy to say. It's not easy to do. And, and, and boy, pressure comes. Pressure can come, and it can hammer you. But I'm going to tell you something about this life we call Christianity. It's it's not about what other people think you are. It's not about your reputation. It's not about how others perceive you. We can craft an image of any kind we want like that. It is not about that. It is about the truth of us. That's the difference between reputation and character. Reputation is what everybody thinks about you. And it's important, but it may not be true. Character, that's what God knows about you. And that's the truth. And that's what's important. All right, God does test us. It's not fun, but it is for our own good. I could go back many, many, many times in the Bible and show you places where God tested humanity. God tested Job. God tested noah in a very real sense god tested abraham god does not tempt people james one is clear god doesn't tempt us but he does test us the difference is temptation will destroy you god doesn't destroy you temptation will destroy you but testing will improve you it will make you better if you respond to it correctly number two perseverance is the great equalizer It succeeds when all other gifts cannot. Perseverance is the great equalizer. I I had a friend in school named Chris. And Chris was a a smart guy. But he had to work really, really hard to make good grades. He took no-dos and stimulants to stay up at night. He had to study for hours and hours and hours and hours. And he made straight A's. I made straight A's. Um... We we're, were both in the, the accelerated section, you know. And uh, I just, I never took a book home. And I didn't study at all. I just remembered it. And I'd, I'd make, I'd, I'd go fight the teacher for the extra points about Star Trek. We had teachers that, for some reason, they like to give extra point, bonus points on Star Trek questions. So I lost 20 bucks doing that one time. Anyway, I'd fight for 102. So... The difference between people is that some people have to fight and struggle and work very hard to achieve the same level that other people don't have to work so hard to achieve. And it's, it seems unfair, but you know what? It, if the end result doesn't matter, if, if you work hard and the end result is the same, then who knows the difference? He got a four-year full ride to Princeton. I got offered a four-year full ride to Yale. I turned it down to go to Southeastern. But it is what it is. I just didn't have to work as hard. I got to hunt and fish while Chris was studying. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I felt like homework was an intrusion in my private life. I had a principal disagreement with the school, and I still do to this day. I think it ought to be against the law for any school to assign homework. You got my kid for seven hours a day. Leave my home time alone. No homework ever. So when I got in the eighth grade ninth grade 9 10 11 12 when I got in the ninth grade I made a decision you know what I'm done with this homework thing I I don't believe homework's fair I don't believe it's right me and my daddy like to hunt and fish I'm going to hunt and fish with my daddy so I'm gonna do all my homework assignments at school so between classes while everybody else was talking and gooning around I'd write a theme paper or I'd do my math homework or I'd do whatever I promised myself I'm never taking a school book home not one time from the ninth 10th 11th or 12th grade and I never did I never did and if it weren't for the wreck I was in, I was, I was valedictorian until the wreck knocked me out of that. I still graduated number eight or number nine, but I would have been the valedictorian, but I got all banged up, couldn't keep up. You don't, you don't know French or chemistry without somebody teaching it to you, you know. français, monsieur? So anyway. The point is perseverance. It's not how smart you are, how naturally gifted you are, it's the work ethic. It's the perseverance. It's like Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was not the most naturally gifted basketball player to ever play. In my opinion, he's still the greatest there ever was. Somebody asked him one time, what makes you so much better than everybody else? He said, I just worked so hard on the fundamentals. You know, people were amazed that Liberace, and, and he was gay and I'm not I'm not a big fan. I don't like that kind of music, but you gotta give credit where it's due. The man could play the piano. His personal assistant never heard him make a mistake in all of his years. And somebody was interviewing his personal assistant and said, is it true that you've never heard Liberace make a mistake? He said, that's true. I've never heard him make a mistake. They said, well, how often does he practice? As good as he is, he must not have to practice. He said, oh, no, 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 no. He practiced eight hours a day. Luciano Pavarotti, the absolute, unquestionable, greatest tenor to ever walk the face of the earth. If you want to listen, you want to listen to three minutes of the greatest music you've ever heard, get on YouTube and look up Luciano Pavarotti, Nessun Dorma in Paris. He is 63 years old, I think, or 65. And that three-minute rendition of of Nessun Dorma, it's just unbelievable to me. And I don't even like opera. But, the, but what he did right there at 63, and they said he practiced all the time. So perseverance, 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 perseverance. True story, man in Arizona bought a gold mine. It had been sort of mined out, and the vein had sort of fizzled out, but he had the feeling that there was more gold in there. So he got in there and started digging, started digging, started digging. He kept finding a little bit of gold, but he started digging, started digging, and he never could find the vein again. One day, in utter frustration and financial despair, he went in his house and killed his children and his wife and killed himself. The people who bought the mine after him came in, dug about three feet, and struck the vein of gold. If he had just dug one more day, one more day. Perseverance, man, it's the great equalizer. Nobody thought anybody would ever run a four-minute mile. It It was the great barrier in all of sports. Nobody would ever run a mile under four minutes until Roger Bannister did it, way back in the 1960s, I think. And when Roger Bannister ran the four-minute mile, or the three-minute and 57 seconds, whatever it was, when he broke the four-minute mile, within two weeks, like a dozen other runners had done the same thing because they all knew, hey, it was doable. It was doable. So... Perseverance is the great equalizer. It is not natural talent, not intellectual capability or comprehensiveness, or the ability to retain and regurgitate It's not those things. It is the work ethic that separates success from failure. Number three, developing. Let's talk about this word. The testing of your faith develops perseverance. Developing something is a process. Now, when you hear the word process... I want you to stop and think about for a moment, what does that mean? What does it entail when I contemplate the semantics and the dynamics of a process? A process has a beginning, it has a duration, and it has a completion. I actually did that backwards for you. It has a beginning, left or right. A beginning, a duration, and a completion and an exit. And hopefully a goal that was attained or achieved. This implies and connotes to us process that it it develops over the course of time it is a journey it is not something that occurs instantaneously it's not like like can i bench press 300 pounds or not you know you, you know that right right then and right there well if you want to bench press 300 pounds today you might not be able to bench press but 125 but if you work at it long enough hard enough Over the long haul, you can bench press 300 pounds, 400 pounds, 500 pounds, 600 pounds. There are people now that are eyeballing a 1,000-pound bench press. So somebody just deadlifted 1,100 pounds, I think, set the new world record for a deadlift. I've deadlifted over 700. I'm going to tell you, that's heavy. So 1,100 pounds, man, that's powerful. That's powerful. But you develop that. When he was 13, he couldn't do that. When he first started lifting weights, he couldn't do that. It's a process. When, when you start thinking process, begin to think, okay, and a process is not always linear, strict. In other words, it's not always one-dimensional. A process can be the, the the development of iron ore the extruding of ore the separation of ore from dirt, then the purification of ore into several different metals the the the, the cyclical uh, spinning of the ore to separate it further then the the other final purification then the solidification the processes are multi-dimensional they they differentiate you know the process of, of simple simple as, as making fire it it can take a lot of different steps in a process my dad used to paint cars it took him 22 steps to paint a car correctly and back in the 1960s when a dollar was a dollar my daddy would charge you 2500 bucks to paint your car he was one of the top two or three in the whole nation and he knew it and he didn't back up to say nothing he'd say you know (laughs) he got it because he was that good but it's about the process What goes on in the process? Number four, developing something takes time. This is part and parcel of a process. We have to go through a series of events. Now, this is starting to not sound like a lot of fun. Process and time. We think, okay, whoa now, hang on a minute. But nobody's born with perseverance. It is a learned attribute. Nobody's born with patience. It is a learned skill. None of us is born with this singular focus on a goal that's way out there in front of us that we can achieve. Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he was 13 years old, went to the gym for the very first time. When he went home that day, he was so sore he could hardly walk because he worked out with these big Austrian guys, and he was 13. He said, I woke up the next morning and I knew exactly what a tricep was because all three of the muscles in my tricep hurt so bad I could hardly brush my teeth. He said he went to his dad that day, and he hurt. He was sore. He could hardly move, and it got worse the next day. In in a day or two, he went to his father, and he he said, Dad, I've made a decision. His dad said, What? He said, I want to be the best-built man in the world. And his dad was very upset because he said, Son, you can't make any money like that. (laughs) And in his dad's mind, you couldn't. His dad wasn't thinking Hollywood, movies. That was a far cry, living in Austria, poor just slinging iron around in a gym. You know, the journey, the process, the development motif that God has you on might not make any sense to you. It might not seem like it's taking you in the direction that you feel like God wants you to go. But the process doesn't always look like the promise. The development doesn't always look like the destination. I know that sounds kind of preachy-hokey, but it's true. The things we're going through don't always look like the places we're going to. We have to remember that while we're in the process. Man, being in the process is no fun, especially after you've been hurt. Hurt and then process, uh uh-uh. I'll tell you about my terrible accident I got in in 1976, and I remember going home and my jaw was still wired up and I couldn't eat remember couldn't wash my hair all strapped up and cast everywhere and being wheeled around in a wheelchair and I felt I was so weak and I was so feeble I just felt like man I'm just never going to be back to my old self again well I certainly did get back to my old self and, and far surpass that because I was only 16 when it happened and I was much stronger after that than I was before but it was a process we don't like this idea of process we don't like the the idea of it taking time. But number five kind of caps this development thing off, and it says developing something means learning. And this is the key to the whole, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. It doesn't have to. It can actually develop something else. The testing of your faith, it's not necessarily true that the testing of your faith will develop perseverance unless you and I respond to it correctly. The testing of your faith may also incite within you incredible frustration if you allow it. It has the ability to engender within us a sense of uh, arrogant entitlement. This is not fair. I'm this is beneath me. I don't understand why I have to go through blah, 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 blah. You see, it depends on how we respond to it. Another one of my undeniable truths. It's not what happens to us, it's how we respond. That's a whole lot more than just being nice and holding your tongue when you're angry. It means responding correctly to the processes of God growing us up and trying to develop in us a character trait he desires like perseverance, which may be the most important character trait we could ever develop in our lives. Number six, he is testing our faith. The Bible says the testing of your what develops perseverance? Faith. Faith. So he's testing your faith. Now think about what does that mean? That means things are going to happen to you and to me that are going to make us question this whole thing because that's what faith really is, isn't it? Hebrews says, without faith it is impossible to please God because first, we must believe that he exists. The devil will come along, especially you younger people that are going to uh, universities or colleges or even in high school now, there are some liberal professors out there who think their purpose and calling and job in life is to get you to question everything you believe. Somebody, and I believe it was Reverend Victor Smith, who is now the district superintendent of South Carolina, and I love Reverend Smith, I still do. He was my pastor for a while. I believe it was him who said to me, I tell you what, he said, you better decide what you believe before you get to Bible college. And that, I mean, I was 14, 15, 16 when he said that. I think it was even before the wreck. And I said, why? He said, because there are professors down there that'll, that will prod you and make you question, and the, and the kids in college, the way they act. He said, everybody that goes down there is not a Christian rolling. He said, they'll make you question everything you ever believed. He said, decide what you believe before you get there, brother, I'm telling you. And you know what? He was 100% dead on in the bullseye. I'm glad I decided what I believe. Uh, Let me just ask you. Don't answer, but let me just ask you. Have you really decided what you believe and why? About God, about the spiritual realm, about eternity, about the future, about the Bible, about how we should govern and conduct ourselves? Have you really decided what you believe and why? Let me tell you something. Now, this is important. I want you to listen. You cannot have a belief system based on what somebody else told you. You have to have a belief system based on something with more weight and credibility than, well, I knew this one preacher and I really liked him and he said, uh-uh. my mom and daddy always told me, well, I appreciate that, but that's not good enough. Not for eternity. Listen, your eternity hinges on what you believe and why you believe it. Eternity. I'm not talking about 75 years old. I'm talking about 75 million years from now. You'll still be there based on what you believe and why you believe it. You better make two decisions that are quality. In my younger years, I decided I was going to do my own research. So I did. I dug through. Back then we had these bizarre manuals known as encyclopedias. It was basically the internet on paper in book volume. And everything in it was not accurate, I found out later on. We also had books called The Dictionary, which I'm one of the strange birds that used to enjoy reading. One guy, one comedian named Stephen Wright said, The Dictionary is just a long poem about everything. <laughs> he said that I almost fell out of my chair. Such a strange guy. But... uh researched religious papers, rare books at the library, ancient writings. I did all kinds of research. And I came to the conclusion that the Bible was ab- absolutely and actually true. It was accurate. And I'm not, I'm not saying that you need to go on a journey like that because there are two or three things. There's one thing that persuaded me to be a Christian probably more than anything else. I'll tell you what that is. It is the prophecies about Jesus Christ and their fulfillment. Now, Berkeley University is the most liberal, one of the most liberal colleges in this country. They did a study on 11, there are over 200 prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ, but they did a study on 11 very specific prophecies about Jesus from the Old Testament that didn't didn't come to pass until hundreds and some thousands of years after the fact. And they did this based on probability, a probability theory. Um, and that is, what are the probable odds that these prophecies would be fulfilled without intelligent design, without a guiding power, without God, basically? What are the odds that these 11 prophecies would come to pass just on their own? And at the end of it, it was a, odds were one in one followed by 27 zeros. Or maybe it was 87 zeros. It was an incredible number. So the bottom line is the the 11 prophecies about Jesus, just those 11, and they're over 200, but just those 11, absolutely astronomical, impossible, ridiculous odds that they would ever come to pass without God making them happen. That he'd be born in Bethlehem. That none of his bones would be broken. That he'd be crucified between two thieves. It goes on and on and on. Very specific prophecies, and nobody could have... I mean, there's no way to to denounce that. And they all happened. That's one of the main reasons I'm a Christian today is messianic prophecies in the Old Testament and their fulfillment. If you're looking for facts, hard facts, look no further than right there. That will persuade anybody with an IQ higher than a guppy that the Bible is true. So, he is testing our faith. People in this world want to undermine your faith. Um... Islamic terror, which is not extreme. It is the basics, the basis of their religion. Uh, I'm going to talk about this for a second. I'm not getting political. I'm, I'm, I'm being religious. This isn't political. This is religious. It's not political. It's religious. The religion of Islam, the Quran, their holy book, their counterpart to our Bible, tells them plainly, kill the infidel wherever you find him. I mean, these are not, these are not stories in, 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 the, in some obscure text of the Quran, these are directives from Muhammad of how to live their life and wage jihad, which is war against the infidel. Uh, it, the idea, and, and I'm going to tell you something, there's never going to be an end to it until the powers that be in this world understand and admit to themselves that Islam itself is the problem. It is not radicalized, people. And the Islamic imams who teach in the mosque will tell you this. You can get online and watch them, and they will tell you. I started, I've started to play one. Uh, you can see, he says, what is this extreme Islam? What is that? He says, is, is not Islam Islam? Is not the penalty for homosexual? Death is not that Islam, that is Quran, that is Islam. It is not extreme. It is what we believe. And he went on and on and on yeah you can beat your wife yeah she has to wear a hijab yeah you know treat her like a goat yeah you can kill homosexuals yeah you can kill the infidel yeah you can take their property this is part and parcel of basic islamic belief the fact that there are there are muslims who don't believe that they're the ones that are oddballs in the religion not the ones that are blowing themselves up those are good faithful practicing muslims But see, we've been brought up to believe, oh no, they've been radicalized somewhere. Those people are crazy because what they're doing is crazy. But until we understand and realize this religion itself is where all this teaching comes from. And the imams themselves will tell you that. Did you know that 89% of Muslims in America, let me me repeat that. 89% of Muslims in America believe that violence to promote your political cause is acceptable. Tell me Islam is not a problem. It is. And until the whole religion changes and, and decides, okay, those, those particular extreme verses that tell us to kill people, we're going to abandon that and, and we are going to be a peaceful religion, you're going you're to see things like ISIS and Al-Qaeda all your life. Because that's what they believe. That's what the majority of Muslims believe. So they want to test your faith by saying if you don't denounce Christ, we're going to saw your head off with a dull knife. That's a test of your faith. Do you have the power if if 45 rag-headed people with AK-47s and knives came in here right now, do you have the faith to stand and look at them and say, "No, I will not denounce Jesus Christ. Do what you want." I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down in a blaze of glory. <laughs> might be surprised. I'm not slamming anybody or any group. I'm just telling you the truth about a religion that is causing chaos around the world. Now, the Islamic terrorists want to test the faith of Christians by threatening to kill them. In less extreme ways, God wants to test us, not with threatening to kill us, but he wants to test our faith He wants to know what we will do. He wants to know, do we really trust him? Do we really believe him? Will we really get out of the boat and take the first step on the water? You know, I've often wondered what that felt like. Of all the things Peter could have asked Jesus to do, why'd he ask him that? Lord, let me catch a 40-pound bass. I'm going to ask him that. If it's really you, let me catch a 40-pound bass right now. No, if it's really you, let me walk you on the water. I wonder how that first step felt. Man, he's testing our faith. He's not just testing your patience. He's not just, not just testing your relationship. It's deeper than that. He's not just testing your obedience. It, he's testing your faith. Do, God is asking, do you in fact trust me? Do you believe when I'm silent? Will you refuse to relent in pursuing me when I seem hard to find? In the toughest days of your life, will you not turn away from me like my servant Job? He is testing our faith. Number seven, character in us only develops if we respond to the test the right way. I alluded to this earlier. I want to talk about it for a minute now. Character is important. Character matters. The fruit of the Spirit is a treatise on character. This is the character we should all possess. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the character traits we should have. Character is is who you are on the inside. Character is what you do when nobody knows. Character is the decisions you make if you knew you could get away with it and never get caught and never answer for it. Character is if you could snap your fingers and freeze frame everybody. And for the next seven days, Nobody in the world would move. And you could do anything you want. You were the only one who would see it. You were the only one who would know. You could do anything you want to anybody you want. Nobody would know the difference. And at the end of that seven days, everybody would go back to normal and they would never know a moment of their lives had been skipped. What would you do during those seven days? Character or the lack of it will determine what you do. Now, when you get home tonight, you're going to sit around and you're going to wonder, what would I do if I could freeze frame everybody for seven days? Wow. How are we going to respond to God's tests? It's not just that we pass it. It's not just that we come through it. It's how do we come through it. One of the greatest illustrations of that is little boy in class. The little boy is seated by the window i can see the classroom in miss faulkner's class i had a teacher in, in the second grade named miss faulkner i remember her and our class is on the second floor and on the left-hand side of the classroom there were these windows and they were painted green around the edge and you could screw the screw and they'd and go out you know you could see the trees and the, the playground out there and i remember so many times we would be sitting in miss faulkner's class and i'd look out there at the tree and and i would want so badly to go out there and Look down and see what was going on out there on on the playground. So bad. Couldn't do it. Had to pay attention. She probably wanted to assign me homework. Anyway. Little boy gets up. He's sitting by the window. He gets up, steps over in the aisle, and looks out the window. The teacher says, Johnny, sit down. He doesn't move. He's transfixed. He's looking at something. She says, Johnny, sit down. He doesn't move. She finally gets up out of her desk, walks over, and taps him and says, Johnny. He says, yes, ma'am. She says, sit down. He says, I I, I don't want to sit down. I want to look out the window. She says, I know, son, but you have to study. And we have to do class, so you have to sit down. He looks at her and he goes. And she says, why are you looking at me like that, Johnny? And he says, my body is sitting down, but in my mind, I'm still standing up right there. That is not how God wants us to pass the test if we pass the test and all it does is make us angry or even if we come to the right answer but we don't have the right attitude about it. God's not happy with that. He wants the motivation to be right. He wants us to learn not just the lesson, but He wants us to learn the right lessons, and He wants us to assimilate the learnings in the right way and infuse them into our character. Now listen to me. I feel anointed by the Holy Ghost to say this. You can grind the sharp, jagged, hard edges off your attitude yourself, or God can do it for you. But if you ever want to be used by God, you cannot be a saw blade. You'll just go through life ripping people up. On the inside of you where nobody knows, you have got to be soft around the edges. And that requires unbelievable perseverance with people. Because after so many years in ministry, you see the same problems and the same situations over and over and over and over and over and over ad nauseum over and over you cannot let that harden you or sour you or or vex you out to the point you just want to throw your hands up and walk away and the only way you can do that is to learn the lesson of graceful perseverance patience don't give up don't give up on yourself don't give up on the task and above all don't give up on people Don't give up on people. Don't give up on humanity. Don't give up on the church. Don't give up on Christianity. Don't give up on God. Perseverance. I'm not not even as excited about this verse as I am the one that's coming in in a few weeks, and and we'll get to it. So character in us only develops if we respond to the test the right way. Our attitude, our motive, the takeaways, what we learned, how we feel about what we learned. How, How has this how has this shaped our attitude? Now listen, I really feel the presence of God in here. I'm going to tell you this now. Life is going to make you bitter or better. It's up to you. You just got to decide to let it make you better. David said something in Psalm 51 after the prophet Nathan had fingered him with Bathsheba and said, you're the man who's done this. David in Psalm 51 wrote his prayer of repentance. It's the same chapter that Jimmy Swaggert read in front of the whole nation tears streaming down his face when he was exposed for what he did years and years ago. And that's no secret. And I'm not, certainly not slamming Jimmy Swaggart. You should forgive him and love him and move forward and pray for his ministry. Pray that, pray that it's all like it's supposed to be. Amen? We don't jam preachers that blow it because they're just human, just like you. But David wrote, God grant me a willing spirit to sustain me i think that's probably god's end game and perseverance not so that we'll just learn to be doggedly hard-headed and rigidly determined and inflexibly purposed but that we will have a willing spirit because somebody with a willing spirit just never gets tired and just will not give up they go through times and they got to have a break we all get tired i don't mean that i'm not growing weary in some way that makes you just walk away from everything Somebody that's got a willing spirit. They're willing to learn. They're willing to grow. They're willing to hear. They're willing to serve. They're willing to be led. They're willing to minister in places that seem obscure to men but may be front-line, headline news every day in the kingdom of God. You realize that? God's cameras might not be on the biggest church or the biggest arena or the biggest name. God's cameras might be focused on some obscure place in Papua New Guinea. Who knows? Three takeaways at the bottom. What separates us from our dreams is the degree of effort we are unwilling to exert. Now, I I dare say that you will rarely find a, a more challenging and more powerful statement to read and ponder over than that one. What separates us from our dreams is the degree of effort we are unwilling to exert. It was amazing. I was writing this sermon and when I wrote that down and I finished the sermon later on that day I was scrolling somewhere. I don't know what, where it was, Pinterest or Facebook or something. Maybe I was on the, some other historical website. But <coughs> by the way, I got an email the other day that was empty. And check this out. I'm not joking. Check this out. The only thing it had was a date. And the date of the email on my it had no content it had my name and it had an email and the date of the email was 1967 isn't that weird that happened i've also been getting emails from two two people who are not me uh well, somebody sent me an email that said hey abiba i'm like abiba anyway i hope i'm not hacked somehow but it wouldn't surprise me later on that day i read a statement a quote that was very similar to this a little bit different. But it was amazing that on the day I wrote this, I read something so close to it. But What separates us from our dreams is the degree of effort we are unwilling to exert. If you're willing to pay the price, if you're willing to exert the effort, if you're willing to do whatever it takes, then almost nothing is impossible to you. Yesterday was the anniversary of D-Day. If you don't know that much about World War II and some of you younger people, you may think, nah, that's old history. Listen, you need need to go and bow at the feet of the men and women who died in World War II because if it weren't for them, you'd be German and Japanese today. You need to watch Saving Private Ryan. And I I, I, I counter that and I, I qualify that by saying there's horrible language, graphic, gory, bloody violence. But the first 20 minutes of that movie is, is taken from the actual events, the handwritten notes of soldiers who landed on Utah and uh, Omaha and Normandy and all these beaches uh, across the English Channel from where we launched the invasion. I saw a picture of, of Normandy, one of the beaches there that was taken on June the 6th of 2016, last year. And it's just a beach. Looked like any other beach. But in 1944, on June the 6th, there were almost 10,000 men who lay dead on that beach in the struggle to free the world from tyranny. Everybody else was wondering if this was really a problem. I'll tell you who really, who really won the war. I think there's one man who, who, in the final analysis of it all, in my opinion, is the greatest hero of World War II, Winston Churchill. And the reason is, when everybody else thought, eh, Winston Churchill was, was saying, we will fight them in the cities. We will fight them in the fields. We will fight them in the, in the countryside. We will never give up. We will never surrender. That's the kind of dogged determination that overcomes. Now, we landed in France, and we didn't stop till we got to Berlin. And we lost hundreds of thousands along the way. But you know what? We prevailed. That's what perseverance does. Perseverance says, I'm not going to give up. It says, whatever it takes, I'm willing to pay that price. You have that attitude, you can do anything. What separates us from our dreams is the degree of effort we are unwilling to exert. Secondly, mountains can be viewed in two ways, obstacles or adventures. This goes back to it. How do we view things? We can view obstacles as vexation, as irritation, as delays, as hindrances, or we can view obstacles as chances for us to get stronger. We can view obstacles as opportunities for God to show himself mighty in our lives. Listen, I passed by Kentucky Fried Chicken today. I looked at the sign. There was the sort of the effigy, as it, well, as it were, of Colonel Sanders, and I remembered the story. And he was an old man, already retired, had $106 in his pocket, and that was it. he started frying chicken and selling out of the trunk of his car. Five years later, he was a billionaire. Now, you know what? It occurred to me today in a real soft way in my spirit. Yeah, but Colonel Sanders is dead. He didn't take a dime of that with him. I didn't know anything about Colonel Sanders. I hope he's a man of God walking the streets of glory. But he could have been a raging, pervert, child molester. I don't know the man. He could be in heaven. He could be in hell. That's between him and God. But all that he did in this world was really just a test for that day that he's going to stand before Jesus. And his eternity, his life, life really begins that day. It doesn't really begin on your birthday down here. Life really begins on that day because your life down here is not going to be much different from 100 years, give or take 20 or 30 on either side. 100 years is it, Jack. You're you're either here or gone. In 100 years, that's your life down here, give or take a little bit on either side. But once you get to heaven, you start a rope here and you string it all the way to Pluto and pass that to the next galaxy and pass that to the next galaxy and pass that to the next galaxy. And pass that to the next galaxy and on and on and on into infinity. And every millionth of a millimeter on that rope is a million years. When you get to the end of it, you'll just begun living in eternity. So that's why the first hundred years of life here is really a vapor, and it's just a test. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with the Word of God and God's will for your life? So view the mountains of your life as opportunities for you to grow. View them as adventures. You're not going to get out of this place alive. Live life to the full, man. Dare to do something great. Be passionate. Persevere. Find out what you think God wants you to do. And Katie, bar the door, man. Full bore ahead. Go for it and do it. You only live once. Last thing to think about starting over is infinitely better than giving up. Above all things, let me encourage you tonight, in the heart of hearts, don't you ever give up. Don't ever quit. Sylvester Stallone was an aspiring actor. Nobody knew him. He put a backpack on his back and took off to New York City to make it big. He had a condition as a child. He had flat feet and he had paralysis on the left side of his face you know you always kind of look at sylvester and think you know he's he's not a bad-looking guy but something weird about him it's because he had a condition as a baby his face was kind of paralyzed on one side he got so poor nobody would hire him he didn't have any money he spent three weeks sleeping in a bus station in new york he said i got so poor i was either i either had a choice i either had to do a porn movie or rob somebody he said, I didn't want to do it, but I was going to starve to death if I didn't do something. So he actually, years and years and years ago, Sly Stallone did a porn movie. It's a matter of public record. He was watching a show, something to do with Muhammad Ali. And as, a, as an inspiration out of that TV show he watched, he wrote the screenplay for the first Rocky film. He took it to all these producers I think 27 production houses. And all of them kind of turned him down except one. And one said, I'll give you $350,000 for the script. Now think about as poor as he was, how much money that was. He said, only if I can be Rocky. I want to play the part of Rocky. The guy said, no. Sylvester Stallone in that moment made a decision that would change his life. He decided to walk away from the deal. He said, if I can't be Rocky... I don't want the money. So he kept looking and kept going and kept looking. And finally, somebody said, oh, fine, whatever. You want to be Rocky, be Rocky. A year later, he accepted the Grammy, not the Grammy, the Oscar, for Best Picture. Rocky, the original Rocky won Best Picture. And his life was never the same. That's a hard sell, hard case story, Of true life of of someone who just refused to quit someone who just refused to give up you know you 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 read these you've all heard about these harry potter books you know that the only person in england who is richer than jk rowling who wrote the harry potter books the only person who's richer than her is the queen and nobody knows how much the queen's jewels are worth much less the the what they call the salary of the queen which is all the wealth of the the crown nobody even knows that's like the vatican N- nobody knows how much money the vatican has because number one they keep the secret number two how do you put a price on some of the uh, the statues that were carved by michelangelo and leonardo da vinci how do you put a price on the ceiling of the sistine chapel hand painted with dyes handmade by michelangelo how do you put a price and it's priceless there's there's only one it's beyond price the point of all this is with perseverance it's amazing what you can get done with perseverance, it's, 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 almost, it's almost a great equalizer that makes almost everything possible. If you just won't quit, it's amazing what can happen. And the Bible is telling us here that God, consider it pure joys, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance man you see what we think is antagonistic what we think is the antipathy of success what we think is oppositional what we think is God making it hard for us what we think is difficulty and challenging and irritating and it wants to get us discouraged it wants to make us give what we think is such a negative in life is actually God making us better it's actually God making us stronger It's actually God growing us so that in the future we will be at a place where He really can use us and He really can trust us. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this night. I thank You for the power of this opening verse of this incredible book that we have the glorious opportunity to sit and read at our leisure when people all over the world are tortured to death, beheaded, burned at the stake, skinned alive, all because they possess one page of a Bible. I pray today, Lord, that we would count our blessings and that we would thank you for the incredible gift of the Word of God that you've given us. Let us not treat it like some annoying little book. Let us not treat it like something we have to do. Let us look at the Word of God and let us remember the, the living human beings being burned as torches on, on the road to the Colosseum. Let us remember the monks and those who, who wrote and copied the pages of this incredible book, who paid for it with their lives. Men and women across the years who took a stand in defense of the Word of God and paid for it with their lives. Men and women across the world right now who, when they take a stand for Jesus Christ, Many times they pay for it with their lives in in horrific, unimaginable ways. And here we come home and toss it on the counter, turn on the television and watch what we really want to watch, some mindless show that has no eternal value whatsoever. Lord, turn our hearts again towards your word. Let us understand the treasure that it truly is, the way it can impact, mold, and shape our lives the ways in which it can mature us and grow us up and prepare us for the, for the task and the missions that you have out there before us. There is no other book, no other activity, nothing else we can do that will so penetrate our very soul and transform us like the words that you've written between the pages of Genesis and Revelation. We are so blessed to have this book before us that we can read and study. We have multiple translations at the press of a button. There's so much you've given us, Lord. There is no excuse whatsoever for us to not be the preeminent Christians that you commissioned us to be. I pray that you give us a hunger in our heart for your word to personally grow, to mature, to become persevering and let that be a part of our character like we never have before. And I thank you and I praise you for it now in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Let's give God praise before we go. Amen.